we have so much to learn. Sometimes we need to learn about learning. So I pray that you would help us with that this day. Open our minds and our hearts. Teach us to think, I pray, in your ways a little bit more today. In Jesus' name, amen. What I'd like to do as we begin this morning is look back twice, two times. First of all, you've heard me say many times, and if you haven't, you get to hear me say it again, that we gather and serve and learn around here. We believe that that's what God, by His instructions, has called us to do. And those three simple values have created a a plan for us. And our first year in this plan was, it's better to gather. And there, we worked on regrouping, on returning to exploring and emphasizing our relationships with each other and with the Lord as we followed the injunction in Scripture to gather. That led to this current year, which we are just moving out of and into our third year. But our second year was called, It's Greater to Serve. And in this, we have been turning our focus from more than just about us to what the Lord would have us do in His name for His purposes. And we've used Micah 6.8 to kind of give us an anchor for that. He has shown you, O man, and what does the Lord require of you but to act justly, to, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So we began to realize that this walk with Christ isn't just about me and Him. It's about us and Him and how we would reach and serve each other. Now let me remind you, as I'm reflecting on these things, and now, of course, that's begging the question about, okay, now we turn to it's wiser to learn. Yeah, let me show you something, or remind you, that what we are doing as we go through this is not linear. It's accumulative. accumulative. It accumulates as we go. We don't simply decide we're going to gather, then we'll turn to serving, and then we'll turn to learning. We don't check an item off. We add to it as we learn. Fact is, we're not done serving. If anything, we're at a point where we're needing to learn more about what serving really means. Which is why it's so essential for us to transition to our next step of it's wiser to learn. Because if you have, and I believe many of you have, engaged more in what God would have you do in serving others, it may have created as many questions in your mind as answers. As you begin to to dig into what does this really mean? How much am I supposed to do? When do we start and stop? What kind of serving can I do better? What things should we be involved in that would really make more of a difference. You see, understanding a perspective of where we've come from and and the background and what got us here helps us understand more of where we're going. This is why I said I wanted to look back twice this morning. All of this great thinking that we're offering you to try and uh, create a plan in this church that that is clear and understandable and something that we can really wrap our arms around and be a part of is nothing new. We aren't thinking uh, grandly like we've never thought before. The fact of the matter is, the more we attempt to clarify our thinking, 
the more we realize we're simply scratching the surface of the immeasurable wisdom and knowledge of an omniscient God. Isn't that true? The more you know, the more you realize you don't know. So I wanted to take a second look back. You see, this is nothing new. In fact, the Bible is exactly that in much of its practice. With a very clear and straightforward story from the beginning of God's revelation to us, he shows us something interesting. The Bible does an amazing thing by beginning with something, giving it a context, a background, a narrative, a simple truth, and then it builds on that, expanding it, explaining it, and applying it. So what you learn in a seed form at the beginning of God's revelation to us, you can see expanded to great detail and all of the implications of that as it walks through Scripture and particularly into the New Testament. In this way, the Bible doesn't just teach us something. The Bible teaches us a way. It teaches us a continuing story. It teaches us a lifestyle. It teaches us a way to think and to live. So here's this story, clearly presented in a simple way at the beginning of the Bible. What I'm referring to this morning is Cain, the first son of Adam and Eve, thinking about the instructions. What we learn here carries on and becomes foundation like so many uh, stories in the Bible. There's much to learn that we can understand with all the information that we can get later on. But when it's first presented and we understand this, it becomes such a clear lesson to us that is foundational for learning about the first instructions. What are the original Instructions about thinking, about learning. Well, I'd like us to look at that in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. It's the first book in the Bible. Turn over a few pages, you'll find chapter 4. And there it says, Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the, first of the, some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and he killed him. 
Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, first, we need to dismiss the fairness question. Right off the bat with this story, uh, if you haven't read the rest of the Bible, of God's revelation to us, it looks a little cruel and uninformed here. Uh, Maybe he didn't know he was supposed to bring uh, a sacrifice of an animal to please the Lord. Uh, Isn't God kind of being cruel and messing with him? Um, No, because we can understand the rest of the story. First of all, verse 6 shows us that he knew what was right. You, You know what the right thing is to do. If you do that, you will be accepted. He did know what was right. And secondly, the rest of the Bible shows us the generous, gracious, patience, and kind character of our God. He is not blindly tolerant, winking at everything. There is a standard, as we see in this story. But we also see that he is amazingly good and kind and patient. So this really isn't a fairness question. The fact of the matter is Cain knew what he was supposed to do. So... It isn't about fairness. And secondly, it's not just about right and wrong either. It's not just about Cain and his simple choice. Cain is not living in some kind of a vacuum and able to say, well, um, you know, okay, I get it, so i got to just decide if it's about me doing right or wrong. There's more to it than that. One of the great lies we have believed is that life is just about us. Personal choice has become a virtue and a value that we protect fiercely. Self-determination is what we want to define our society. Opportunity, when you hear that word, is usually defined in the singular first person. Yeah, what, what opportunity is there for me? But as a matter of fact, that's not the case. I, um, I brought a couple of toys with me today. This is a newer version of... Some of us remember the, the little things that just slid around, you know? It's child's play, right? And I'll bet you any one of you could come up here... And, and get this little car's car, you know, in position in just a few minutes. It's child's play, right? 
What's the diff? Oh, no, I don't know. You really, I'm not even good with these things, and I could figure this one out. But what's the difference between this one and this one? I have a brother-in-law who used to uh, bet money in college to kids that he could do this, uh, you know, other students that he could do this in a hurry, but he said he had to be alone. <laughs> so he did. I, I saw him win 20 bucks more, more, several times. And uh, he would go in the other room and he'd take it apart and he'd put it back together again and he'd walk back in again. He became a mechanic and a pilot. Uh, no, you know, so. But, I mean, you could come up here and I can hand this to you and, you know, you'd be here if you're anything like me forever and never get that figured out. Why? Because there's a whole nother dimension, isn't there? And that's what's happening here. You see, life is three-dimensional. There is the doing what is right, which is there. It's important. But there's also discerning what's hanging in the balance. There's always someone else involved. And thirdly, there is the desiring of what God wants, which is most important. It's really quite simple, and you can see it in the story. The, verse 7, the beginning, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? That is important. It's part of the equation. There is more, but it is important, and we see this in other places of Scripture. James, the half-brother of Jesus, later will write the most practical book in the New Testament, and in there he says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. It's clear. There is right and wrong, and it's not relative. It can be determined. It is clearly revealed what's right and wrong. Important. After all, Jesus himself told the parable of the two sons, the father that had two sons, he said, I want you both to go and do this. And one of them said, no, I'm not going to do it. But later he did. And then another one said, sure, I'll do that. And he never did it. And then Jesus asked, which one did the right thing? The one who actually did it. You see, there is the doing right. That's important. But then there's more. Because that verse 7 doesn't end there. It says, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door and desires to have you. You must master it. There's another dimension. And it involves others in a few different ways it involves uh, the battles that we fight with an enemy who's always trying to accuse us and create problems for us there's battles with our own nature and our own sinful tendencies and so there there's another aspect to all of this and then there's always someone who's affected by the choices that i make aren't there you never make a choice that doesn't show up affecting someone somewhere. We immediately see it in this story. Oh, it's just about Cain deciding whether he's going to give the right offering or not. No, it's not. Right after that, he goes out and kills his brother. And then, think of his family that lives under this curse. No one makes a choice that doesn't affect another. You see, we've always got to ask ourselves, what else is hanging in the balance? If I don't do what's right, Not only is it wrong, what other person is going to be affected by that? And then, of course, the Lord himself, desiring what God wants. He says in verse 7, you'll be accepted. The ultimate goal is God's pleasure, what he desires. And then in verse 10, we can see that because he didn't do the right thing, God himself is affected as this blood of his brother cries out from the ground. And justice must be served. What God thinks and wants and desires is of greatest importance. So, there's a real simple truth. 
Life is three-dimensional. There is the right and the wrong. There is, there are others always hanging in the balance. And there is ultimately, of greatest importance, what God desires. In fact, you can put these in, in a hierarchy. And I can't, and I'm not going to explore all of that today, but just think about that. Why might a person even choose to be civilly disobedient and break a law, which is not the right thing to do, but when there is an overriding principle that is greater regarding what God has said, they might choose to do so. See some of the implications of this reality? Life is three-dimensional. And it's complex. Anything that goes from this to this becomes exponentially more complex. What does that mean? Think! That's what that means. We must think. And the more we think, the more we realize we have to learn. How do I do what is right? I need to do what's right, but also how do I do that? And how do I honor God in that? Now, I want to provoke your thinking just a little bit more. Actually, a lot more. Because you kind of get the lesson, but I want us to to see it real life. Remember I said before, we aren't done serving? You know, just because we finished our year of It's Greater to Serve doesn't mean we're done. What happens then when serving becomes 3D, three-dimensional, in real life? This is Kajiado, Kenya. We are here to conduct free medical clinic. Uh, we have a 12 people member team with doctors, one dentist, and uh, one optometrist. When they come, they see the doctor, and then they pick up their medicine, and then they are led to evangelist. Every people who come into this clinic, people will share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm Denise Igbesi, Dr. Denise Igbesi. I do internal medicine and pediatrics. This is my second trip back to Caggiato with the team. Um, and it's been an honor and a pleasure to serve the, the Maasai people as well as the people in, this, in the Caggiato community. Uh, my name is Eric Vinscher. I'm the dentist here with Team Healthcare uh, this week down in Kenya. And I've been pulling a lot of teeth this week. Um, we've been checking to make sure people are healthy and make sure there's no infection, and especially teeth that are too far gone. I helped a little bit with the medicals. I helped a little bit with um, the dentist. Well, the dentist doesn't really, really need much help, and I almost threw up in there. So um. I'm here to assist Dr. Eric in dentistry. We've been pulling a lot of teeth this week. Um, we moved The first three days we went out, into the bush quite a ways, about a two-hour drive each day. But today we're here at the clinic. I'm Dr. Bob. I'm the optometrist around here. And uh, we're here with Team Healthcare. came from New Jersey. 
We're seeing a lot of patients, mostly, unfortunately, with cataracts, uh, with dry eyes, or with a, a allergy eyes, not too many with glasses. I'm Sandy, and I am so thrilled to be here with my loving husband and serving the Lord. We come to Kenya uh, once a year. My desire is to share a gospel with people who doesn't know the Lord. My name is uh, Chris Sethelchuk, and I'm a family practice physician who has been uh, treating patients here at Caggiato. Three of the days I treated patients in the bush camp and the past two days at the base camp. I've been the pharmacist this week, so I've been handing out medicines uh, with some assistance from some younger people. My name is Amelia DiLorenzo, and I've been helping with the pharmacy department. I'm Grace. I've been helping Yana with the pharmacist work. My name's Helen Feltz, and I came on this teen healthcare missions trip to share God's word and the love of God with uh, the people here in uh, Kenya. As the people come in, what I do is I take the blood pressure and I take the temperature and I have a translator, William, who's been helping me. My name's Scott. I have been the pastor with Team Healthcare this week. Um, I've been teaching devotions with Pastor Park's team each morning. I've been doing evangelism during the clinics and also helping out the other doctors with whatever they need. I see, I see God at work through the, the hands of the medical team and I pray that that the love they're showing to the Messiah here will just plant a seed in their hearts.
Everything changes when the issues become 3D, doesn't it? When we go from the classroom to the real world, everything suddenly becomes different. You know, at this time of year in July, I can't help but remember my favorite job ever. I love working here, but this is not my favorite job ever. (laughs) Favorite job ever, lifeguarding. Loved being a lifeguard. Had a great tan, got to hang out with a lot of beautiful people. (laughs) But you know what? Everything changed for me when I was a lifeguard the first time somebody went under and didn't come back up. The first time I blew my whistle for real and had to jump in, and it was up to me to save their life. To be honest, wasn't my favorite job anymore. Because everything suddenly became real. I know lots of lifeguards who have never had to jump into the water. Still their favorite job. Everything changes when it becomes real. So if we never confront issues and situations for ourselves, if all we know about them is what we've read, what we've seen on TV, what we see on the internet, is it ever really real? You know, we live in a culture that experiences so much vicariously. Right? We can get online. I could pick up my iPad. I could find out anything right now just about. Right? We live our relationships through these devices. Our friends are on Facebook. You know, I got together with a friend recently from high school. We keep in touch on Facebook. We haven't seen each other in a long time. You know, once we saw each other, guess what I realized? I didn't really know them anymore. You know, two months ago, I arrived in Kenya with Team Healthcare. And honestly, when I was first invited on this trip, I was a little skeptical. I thought to myself, what difference could I possibly make I'm not a doctor, and it's a medical missions trip. But you know, during that time, it's when we as a church were going through our fast period, and God and I were working on some stuff. And somehow I just knew that when I got that phone call, it was what I was supposed to do. Because it was doing the right thing. He tells us to go. And so I went. And when I got off that plane, I was almost instantaneously confronted with a world where the issues that we have spent much time talking about as a church all of a sudden became real. It was surreal to tell you the truth. Everything came to life. And what I saw has changed me. It's changed the way I think about these issues. It's changed the way in which I think about the issues we face here in our culture. I hope to give you guys a little glimpse of that, and I hope it will change the way we all engage in the issues 
that we engage in. See, the problems are all very complex. And it's all real. I know before I went, sometimes I would think that the things we see on the news, the things the nonprofits tell us, that maybe it's over-sensationalized to make us cry, to make us give money. But what I can tell you is what we see on the news, what the nonprofits tell us, barely begins to scratch the reality that exists. Let's take the issue of clean water. Right? This is an issue we have been dealing with a lot here. Right? We're digging seven wells right now in Peru. The picture you see, that's well number five. It became operational last week. It's exciting. I thought I understood this issue. I've stood up here and talked to you about it. I've encouraged you to give. I talk with the people at Living Water all the time about the progress we're making in Peru. But it's at arm's length. It wasn't real for me until about 30 minutes after we arrived at our first clinic location. And I looked off to the right and watched this woman fill up her jug with dirty water. She was no more than from me to the back of the sanctuary away. This was her water source. But here's what you have to understand about this. There was another option that she chose not to take. That water source was actually created by the group we were working with to provide water for the school. Because without water, they can't have school. Because without water, they can't cook. And if they can't cook and can't feed the kids, they have to cancel school. That little pond actually feeds an underwater sand filter that comes out to a spigot about 25 yards from where she's filling her water jug. I don't know whether she didn't understand it. I don't know if it was just one more extra step that was too hard for her to take when her life is so focused on just surviving. But despite the best intentions of providing a water source that was clean, what was created for this woman was something that's going to make her sick. And so what we have to recognize when the issues become 3D is that we don't have all the answers. We tend to oversimplify things. And so we can't just be content with doing the right thing, giving somebody water, giving somebody access to a water supply. We really do have to discern what hangs in the balance. We have to be careful not to show up and think we know all the answers because we've read something online. Right, when I was there, I heard a story about a nonprofit who came in to deal with infant malnutrition. And they had this great idea. We're going to get a pharmaceutical company to donate a bunch of baby formula. Great idea. I would think of it. I think it's great. They came in 
thousands of cases of baby formula, distributed it, taught people how to mix it up. I don't know how many of you mix baby formula often. We mix it in my house all the time, so I understand this. When you mix baby formula, you don't just make a single bottle. You make a big jug. That's what the instructions tell you to do. And so you know what they did? They made big jugs of baby formula. And they left it sitting out. And they used it until it was all gone. And their babies all died. Because baby formula has to be refrigerated. And there's no refrigeration in Africa. We can't just do the right things. We have to discern what hangs in the balance. You know, the poverty we saw there was to you and I probably beyond description. But I observed, as many of the other people in my team did, that these were some of the most happy, gracious, and loving people we had ever met. They were content. Which made me stop and wonder about my lack of contentment with all that I have compared to all that they don't. Africa is a diverse place, and we have to be careful not to overgeneralize. It's what we tend to do when we don't understand an issue. We generalize, and that's how we come up with these solutions that cause more harm than they do good. Right. I was fortunate. I got to go to three different places while I was there. Two places in Kenya, and then I got to travel on to Rwanda. Total distance between them, closer than here to Cincinnati, 500 miles or so. Totally different cultures, totally different issues. Some of the issues and problems they face are the same, but the solutions are very different. There's lots of well-meaning groups that are actually making it worse. We have to make sure, as we continue down this path, that we partner with groups that are doing the research, that are understanding the issue, that understand the issues. We have to make sure we under really understand the issues. I was fortunate. The two groups I worked with, the Kajiado Christian Medical Center, they've been there 23 years, Pastor Park, who runs that mission. He has a team of 30 Kenyan nationals that he relies on and we relied on while we were there, not just to translate for us and drive for us, but to help us really understand the people we were ministering to. It's the only way we could possibly be effective. The folks at the Rafiki Foundation invest in an inordinate amount of time building relationships, training national staffs, we need to partner with these types of organizations. It's one of the reasons I'm thrilled that we're working with Living Water, because these are the type of relationships that Living Water builds in their communities, that they build wells in, that we're funding. You talk about the well issue with the folks in Africa, and they say so many organizations come in and they build a well, and within a year or two it's broken. No spare parts. No one to call to fix it. Living Water makes sure they train somebody in every community to know how the well operates, to understand how to do basic maintenance, 
and that knows how to contact them if there's a problem. This is the woman who's been trained where our fifth well was just commissioned this past week. There's somebody on the ground who understands what to do if something goes wrong so the investment is not lost. You see, the first step to identifying the meaningful solutions lies in understanding the cultural context that we're working within. Right? And this is true in Africa, and it's also true here. Right? As a staff, when we get together to talk about these issues, we often talk about this idea that the devil works in generalities, but God works in specifics. And so we have to dive into the specifics, right? Whether we're talking about the global water crisis, generational poverty, homelessness, homosexuality, abuse, sex outside of marriage, divorce, abortion. Everything changes when it becomes personal. Everything changes when we put a face to the issue. Right? Everything changes when we find out we have a sibling who just got separated, a cousin who is gay, a daughter who is pregnant and not married, a friend who is being abused. All of our dogma and simple solutions in right and wrong gets challenged when it becomes three-dimensional. These are the issues we have to learn about. And before we get worried that this is all just social gospel, I want to tell you this has everything to do with the effectiveness of how we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to tell you about Emma. I met Emma when I was in Rwanda. Before I went there, if there was one issue I really thought I understood, I thought I understood the issue of suffering, loss, and grief. And then I met Emma. Emma's seven children and her husband were slaughtered in the genocide in Rwanda. The only reason Emma's alive is because Emma was on the bottom of the pile of their bodies and the attackers thought she was dead. Our Gospels of John and our wordless books don't answer Emma's questions. It's easy to think, oh, well, that's just one really sad story. In the span of five months in Rwanda, a million people were slaughtered, one out of seven. It has changed the psyche of that country. And if we don't understand that, if we don't factor that into the gospel message we bring to them, they will never understand the God of the Bible. And it's true there, and it's true here. If we just label the issues, 
they just become political things we fight about, we will never be able to share God's gospel effectively. But I spent a lot of time doing one-on-one evangelism and talking to the different pastors over there. And I observed something really interesting in both Kenya and Rwanda. The issues they are facing in their church are about identical to the issues we sit around here wringing our hands about. You talk to them and you say, what's your biggest issue? And in both countries, and this isn't true universally, but in both countries, their biggest issue is not a lack of evangelism. Their biggest issue is discipleship. People understand the simple message of salvation. But their lives aren't changing. Their cultures aren't changing. And we wring our hands here in the States over the same thing. Why aren't lives being transformed by the gospel message? And I was left to wonder, is it because the issues we face as man are that universal that the American church and the Kenyan church and the Rwandan church have the same exact struggles? Or is it because we've exported a gospel that does not take into account the cultural context. It doesn't take into account the issues that either they face or we face. Have we exported an incomplete gospel? I sat in a church service, listened to a fantastic message through a translator. But the message could have been preached here because the message was all about the church body needs to gather together. It needs to address the needs in its community. We can't just come together on Sunday. We have to get together during the week. We have to be serious about discipleship, about deepening our walks. We have to care for each other and we have to care about the issues our community is facing. My second to last night in Africa, I was in the Rafiki village, and I took a walk around the compound. If you're not familiar with the Rafiki Foundation, I know several of you are, um, they have villages in 10 different countries in Africa. And we have missionaries, Mike and Vicki Cook, who run the village in Rwanda, who I went to visit. And their entire village exists in in a compound, a gated compound. This is the gate going into the compound. And I walked the perimeter of the compound, just praying and processing everything I had seen. And I had been inside this compound for about four days without leaving. And my mind started to think that maybe it wasn't as bad there as I had thought it was in Kenya. Because in the Rafiki village, they actually have a lot of um, things. They have running water. They have a clean water supply. They have a consistent source of electricity. And so you begin to think, oh, maybe it's not as bad here. And as I walked the perimeter, there's a road that goes up next to the, next to the compound. 
And there's a little boy, I don't know, six, seven, eight years old, carrying his two jugs of dirty water. Now, don't misunderstand me. I love the Rafiki Foundation. Everything they're doing is fantastic. I want us to be more involved with what they're doing because they're rescuing people. They're building a next generation of leaders out of these orphans. They're providing them a better life than they would get outside of the fence. My point is, we do the same thing that they've done. We live inside of a compound. We shield ourselves with our fences. And we can forget that on just the other side, there's that little boy carrying his two yellow jugs of water. I know probably about halfway through the trip when we were in Kenya, several of the people that were part of our team, myself included, we sort of wrung our hands a little bit and said, you know, what's the point? Can we really make a difference? We can't grow weary of doing good. We have to do the right thing. We have to understand and discern the differences. We have to love what God loves. You know, this is a picture. It probably looks like a road. It's a dry riverbed. Pastor Park is working to create a water supply for one of the towns that we visited. And he built a dam. That's what you see on either side of that sand pathway, actually. And he walked me down there one afternoon to show me this. They had worked, I don't know, for weeks probably to build this dam. And the rainy season came, and it began to fill up. And he was so excited. And he was in the village one night after an especially hard rain. And he got up the next morning, and he hiked down the hill to this area, excited to see the water source. And this is what he found. The dam had broken. But you know what? You know what he told me? Here's how we're going to fix it. This is what we're going to do. We learned. Ah, we did this wrong. We thought we had this part figured out, but we didn't. The next thing we do is this, and then it will work. We can't be disheartened when things we try don't work out okay the first time. We have to keep learning. We have to keep engaging. We have to keep partnering with people who know more than we do. That is how we will achieve culture change, and that is ultimately how we will effectively share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the people who so desperately need it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for opportunities to see the world in 3D, to get beyond comfort zones. I pray that you would continue to challenge us, Father. I pray that we would not grow weary of doing good. I pray that you would give us perseverance 
I pray that as we turn our attention to this year of learning, that we would learn how to effectively address these issues that are rampant in our society. Issues that keep people from understanding you. I pray that we would be lights for a true gospel. Father, I'll thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.